What's up? Let's talk Bitcoin podcast network. This is POV Crypto. I'm Christian. I'm David. We are POV Crypto. It is the only show that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. And we are trying out something new, working with the good people over at LTBN. So this is why you are hearing us for the first time on that network. Yeah, a lot of you guys might not have listened to POV Crypto before. POV Crypto is all about getting a bunch of people's point of view about how crypto will develop into the future. Christian here is an avid Bitcoiner. I love Ethereum. We each bring our own selective guests onto the podcast to talk about what they're doing, and then we debate. A lot of the times, Christian and I don't bring on guests, and we just have our fight night episodes where we debate about current ongoings in the news and how we perceive them, and we're really here to break your echo chamber about cryptocurrency. Awesome. And without further ado, we would love to present our next episode for the first time on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Please enjoy POV Crypto. Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Dude, you guys are up for a spicy episode. Uh, Dan Held was just on the past one and this time we brought on Gigi at DareGigi on Twitter. He's been putting out some incredible work and in this one, him and David went toe to toe. I was not even necessary. Uh, it was a great show, and I'm going to enjoy listening to it myself. Absolutely. Uh, Gigi just released a Medium article called Bitcoin's Gravity. Talks a, a lot about the the pull that Bitcoin has, bringing so many different players into it. Uh, and we kind of unpack that article a lot. Talk about like the 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 corollaries that it has to all the other industries. Uh, I push back and say it's not Bitcoin, it's just crypto economic systems at large. And you know that, that statement brings us into uh, an unofficial fight night that went really, really well, I would say. Gigi was a, a great sparring partner. Uh, he, he can really coherently illustrate a point uh, and he can also take take a point as well, unless unlike most of these people, most of the people in this space. These people. Um, so, these people, <laughs> all you people. Um, so yeah, Christian, what, what was your favorite part about this episode? Yeah, honestly, I kind of liked that both you guys went toe-to-toe defending POS versus proof-of-work. Personally, I think that consensus mechanisms, especially proof-of-work, are extremely underappreciated and misunderstood. So it's great to kind of you know have that challenge straight up. But uh, you know, I really just enjoyed the entire conversation. All right, well then let's just go ahead and get right into it. And we bring you Gigi. All right, everyone, I am super excited to bring you Gigi at DareGigi on Twitter. DG has been putting out some incredible works, including his recent article, Bitcoin's Gravity, which just took me through a couple of loops while reading it. I had to go through it a couple of times. GG, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and we can just get into this. Hey, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I'm GG. There's not much to say about me. I'm, I'm a computer science software guy and I fell into the rabbit hole a couple of years ago and I was a lurker for a long time and I finally, um, I don't know even when it was probably like, um, yeah, a little bit over a year ago, I just started to give back to the community and just um, write about basically what I've learned and my thoughts about certain things. And yeah, Bitcoin's Gravity is my latest article and it, um, yeah, in, in it, I tr- just tried to explore why everything in the crypto space is so tribal <laughs> and sometimes it escalates and also in the last week or so a lot of people on twitter got into a debate about toxicity and um yeah i think um yeah the, the gravity aspect of those projects and um uh yeah the value that is associated with it just 
feeds into this toxicity. And that's what I what I tried to write about. Gigi, you, uh, you do a really good job kind of talking about the different identities that come to uh, Bitcoin and, and crypto at large. Can you kind of, for our audience, can you explain where your interests lie uh, laid before they were involved with crypto? Like what, what did you pay attention to before we all fell into this trap of, of cryptocurrency? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so hmm, I have a, a long background in, yeah, just the internet in general and computers. And I, I was also, uh, I was always a computer kind of guy, but uh, I, I wasn't exactly the prototypical nerd, so to speak. I, I, um, I did a lot of other things as well. So um, I've, I've, I got into contact with computers uh, through gaming as um, I think, yeah, many people kind of, did back in the day, you, you kind of had to set everything up from from zero. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like in the early 90s, you uh, if you want to get a LAN party going and play with your friends, it was quite intense to set everything up. <laughs> and so that was my first contact with the technical side of, of things. And I ended up studying computer science uh, because of that. And um, I was mainly interested in internet technologies and also free software and also um, future internet technologies. So uh, I worked on stuff that basically Google is now successfully building, um, like they're building the knowledge graph and teaching computers how to think, so to speak. And I also have an interest in AI and related technologies, but I, I really fell into Bitcoin and um, to my peril ignored it the first couple of years when I heard of it and some friends of mine got into it. And I, um, yeah, I, it was a very slow process for me to fall down the rabbit hole, but it um, got more intense over time. <laughs> so I, I actually, uh, I think it took me like three turns to not ignore Bitcoin. And I realized uh, upon closer inspection that um, it kind of touches up on everything that interests me. So uh, it's, an uh, it's an exponential technology in itself. And uh, I think that's really fascinating. Just uh, anything that grows exponentially is um, kind of a force of its own. And yeah, um, for me now, I feel like there is no turning back. And I think the whole space is really fascinating. And um, um, yeah, I, I do my best to focus on Bitcoin full time now. So that's, that's my whole background story. <laughs> How many turns did it take you to ignore Bitcoin? That's going to be the new question I ask guests. <laughs> That's the right way to, to view things. So we, we ha on, on POV Crypto, we have a full spectrum of, of guest types where we have the, the ultra Bitcoin maximalist all the way to the ultra Ethereum maximalist. Where would you say that you fit on that spectrum? And, and not only just Ethereum maximalism, but just other coins as well. How, how much of a polycoiner are you or how much of a Bitcoin maximalist are you? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great question and i, I actually um uh, i listen to a lot of podcasts um but i didn't listen to yours um shamefully and i tried to remedy that in the in the last couple of days and i actually tried to power through them all and i think i'm i i managed to listen to like 70 percent or so of, of uh, your uh, all your episodes and I really enjoyed many of them. Like the one with Murad was excellent. The one with Brandon was as well. And uh, I, I'm of course biased um, towards the Bitcoin episodes. The one with Hazel was great as well. And the one with Drew. And um, it was really interesting to hear the background stories of some of those people as well, because um, it feels like nobody or <laughs> not many people are born Bitcoiners, but they kind of, become Bitcoiners over, over a long period of time. And that was definitely the case for me as well. So I see myself as a Bitcoin maximalist now, even though the term is very loaded. <laughs> I'm definitely open for discussion and other ideas and I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Let's put it that way. Um, so I'm not insanely religious about it, but um, I can also understand why people are insanely religious about it over time. I think the longer you are in the space, the more religious about it you will get. And I also tried to reflect it in that article, but I, I think, I mean, you guys are all about Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And I think Ethereum is kind of interesting and a lot of people in it, um, they have interesting thoughts. And 
I don't think that everyone in Ethereum is, you know, a shitcoin or a scam or whatever. <laughs> like other, other Bitcoin maximalists uh, might be of that opinion. But um, for me, it was just, it's, it's really hard to explain, but I, I, I kind of arrived at Bitcoin again after a while. I was a shitcoiner for quite a while. I was into Ethereum for well over a year, I'd, I'd say. And my conundrum was that I had no education in economics. I had no idea about what money is or about monetary network effects or um, understanding the whole economic side of the game um, was completely new for me. And I tried my best to learn that and understand that over the last couple of years. And for me there, um, it's just um, almost a rational, decision to be a Bitcoin maximalist in a way, um, even though, again, I, I'm willing to be proven wrong. So, um, I, I, yeah, it's hard to predict the future. Let's see what it brings. But I would be very surprised if another project would beat Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that this is a fantastic place to transition into your recent article, Bitcoin's Gravity. In the article, you talk about how different people can be closer or further away from Bitcoin's gravity. And even if they're so far away from Bitcoin's gravity, that'll actually repel them away. Can you break down that idea a little bit further? Um, personally, I thought that the way that you wrote about it was just absolutely beautiful and uh, very help and helped me kind of better understand the space. Yeah, um, so the idea was um, basically that let me let me start from from another angle. So I, I also wrote a series on Bitcoin, which uh, was called what I've learned from Bitcoin. And it was a three part series um, called the like the first one was phil uh, philosophical teachings of Bitcoin. The second one was economic teachings of Bitcoin. And the third one was technological teachings of Bitcoin. And every article had seven lessons. So this adds up to 21 lessons and I just read it all of that and put it up on 21 lessons come. So um, everyone who wants to check that out can just read those small lessons. They're like two, two to 10 minute reads or so. The longest ones are maybe 10 minutes, but the shortest ones are like one or two minutes to read. And I tried to reflect upon what I've learned and just digest it and just also share my journey down the rabbit hole with with others because I just wish that, um, yeah, something like that would have existed when I fell down the rabbit hole. And um, while writing this, I realized that not everyone comes from from the same background and has the same perspective up on, uh, on Bitcoin, but many arrive at the same shelling point, so to speak. So there are a lot of Bitcoin maximalists that have no computer science background at all, and they come purely from a economic background. And there are others that are just programmers or uh, distributed systems engineers or worked on internet protocols, and they had no economic background. And, and all of them kind of arrived at the same shelling point that, um, yeah, all the things that are important to Bitcoin are actually important. So it has to be very stable and very carefully developed. And um, it's, uh, there is no room for failure, so to speak, because if you, if you mess it up once, there is no going back. So um, I thought that's kind of interesting. And I think if you share these values, no matter your background, you kind of arrive at Bitcoin. But on the other hand, in, in terms of the gravity idea, if you come from, a, if you have a very different idea of how things should work, like the move fast and, and break things approach, for example, then Bitcoin just isn't for you and you might end up at another project or might, um, yeah, as I said, float into space as a no-coiner no because in, in, in the blockchain world, there is no such thing as move, move fast and break things. It's just not how it works. And uh, so I tried to encapsulate that idea in the, in the Gravity article. So in terms of like this idea of people who don't view the world in the way that Bitcoin appeals to them can be repelled by it. I actually, I think that that's really accurate. And I find that, uh, you know, David and I have known each other for quite some time and we've actually have very opposite political um, ideologies. We've actually come closer together because of crypto, but um, before crypto, literally completely opposite. And it's no surprise to me that 
um, when you overlay that onto the cryptosphere, you know, I'm much more of a Bitcoiner and David is, uh, you know, a strong part of the ETH community. Um, so I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I also, you know, th- see that, re- you know, every time you hear a Bitcoiner story, generally speaking, they say something along the lines of, I followed Ron Paul, or I was into gold, or, you know, I was kind of uh, libertarian. So uh, it, it really, you know, is pretty accurate. Yeah, I, I think what's also important to point out, and that was the the main idea that um, um, was behind the Gravity article, is that I'm, I'm a strong believer in, um, in the fact that Bitcoin seems to change you more than it changes. Um, like you can't really change Bitcoin, but Bitcoin will change you if you fall into the rabbit hole long enough, so to speak. And that was something that Marty Bent from Tales from the Crypt talked about quite a lot. And I think also the social contract theory um, um, that Hasu wrote about, that it, it, it is all related to the same idea in a way. Um, and once I realized that it kind of everything made sense because I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and it changed me completely. I, I wasn't big into politics. I wasn't a libertarian. I, I didn't care about money at all. I still don't really care too much about money. You know, I, I have kind of other values, which is weird uh, being a Bitcoiner, you know, <laughs> but, but still, um, Bitcoin changed me way more than I thought was possible. And I think it's because of the fact that a lot of values are just embedded in the idea of Bitcoin and are embedded in the protocol itself. And either you start to align with those values slowly or you will have to find something else because the values that are embedded in Bitcoin won't change. And just realizing that this, it was kind of kind of profound for me because um, it also teaches you that this whole thing is way bigger than any any one individual, and I think that's also the idea behind it. You know, if if something is if if something is sufficiently decentralized, you you can't just one individual or a group of individuals can't change it. It's a collective thing, and I think the analogy of Brandon Quidem of um, talking about Bitcoin as kind of an organism and a decentralized organism like Mycelium is excellent in, in that regard because it's there is not one thing that you can attack or not one um, yeah group of people that can drive change. Everything is kind of decentralized and grows organically and uh, yeah, it's way bigger than you are. So that's that's the main idea of the article. So Gigi, speaking of you know, what drew you into Bitcoin? You mentioned that you don't necessarily align 100% with, you know, what drew a lot of other people into Bitcoin. What finally kind of drew you into Bitcoin's gravity? Hmm. For me, it was the realization that you can't kill it. That was it. So once I realized how it works on a technical level, and um, yeah, also my, my experience with the internet and related technologies um, um, let me quickly kind of quickly to the realization okay that's really big and it's set up in a way that you really can't kill it and the internet is the same way i mean if you if you look at the history of the internet it was built for exactly that purpose it was built to still keep going if you know a nuclear holocaust destroys half the world that's that was the whole idea of the internet it's a military system it's born out of a military need to keep information and keep um, information systems going and keep communication going um, even though half of your network is dead and bitcoin builds up on that and makes it even even harder to kill and people are working now as you know on technologies that uh, let you transact with bitcoin even without using the internet so it's it's even more resilient than the internet since it's it's it starts to get decoupled from it as well but for me that was the main realization and um, the main driving force that drew me into Bitcoin and everything followed after that. So all the, all the, the other ideas and uh, economic ideas and also political ideas followed way later after that. So it, it took me probably about two years or so to read up on the economics and everything else. And um, that's also what changed my view on the world quite a bit. So I definitely want to push back on how 
most of the things that you guys have talked about are specific to Bitcoin. But before we do, uh, we're going to end up citing your your Bitcoin Gravity article a lot. Can you kind of give us the like the two to three minute summary of the article and and the uh, basically the TLDR of it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, the article isn't too long, so it, uh, <laughs> it's about a 50 minute read or so. <laughs> um, but the idea is basically that Bitcoin and any project like it, and and I agree with you that it's not Bitcoin specific. Uh, I just, um, it was way easier to, for me to just frame it as a Bitcoin article and focus on that. But I think right. it's clear also from reading the article that um, this, and also just by looking at the graphics, um, this feedback loop, this this gravity, this idea of gravity is at work, no matter the project in a way, and um, the whole article is kind of a, a, a meta idea about ideas. So um, what I say is that Bitcoin's ingredients are are four things: it's ideas, people, code, and nodes, and basically. Um, ideas convince people and the people choose the code they want to run and the code runs on the nodes and that's that's like the, the main ingredient on an individual level and every single individual goes through that process and makes this choice and uh, in the best case sets up a node uh, and so on and so forth and the the second step then is that nodes join a network and the network reaches consensus and the cons consensus enables value and the value in turn reinforces the ideas of the people and so you have this, uh, what I call an idea value feedback loop that it, it all starts with an idea kind of, and you generate and you generate value out of it. And if the, if the idea works and real value is, gen is generated, then um, everything reinforces itself and people become more convinced of the idea, the conviction deepens. And that's how you end up with this tribal and also toxic <laughs> thing, <laughs> the toxicity that, that yeah, like in the last two weeks, everyone talked about. And um, I, I think, yeah, I think even even if it might not be 100% true or that simple as I made it out to be, but I think it's close enough to to the truth that it's kind of um, useful to talk to talk about and think about it in in that way. I totally see your article and the concept of Bitcoin's gravity as one of the illustrations as to how multidisciplinary this, this space is, because there's literally something for everybody. If you're a politician or a regulator, you basically have to be following cryptocurrency. If you're computer science, you know, distributed, the distributed systems that cryptocurrency runs on is, is probably the most interesting thing to come out of the field. Uh, economics is just extremely relevant, you know, traders and so many like disparate uh, areas of study that have nothing to do with each other all kind of converge. And it's these interactions of, you know, the, the interactions between traders and computer science and regulators that these people have never come to the same platform before. And now we all have to learn like how to talk to each other and how to communicate amongst each other, which is why this is, which is why getting crypto to be adopted is just going to be such a huge mess because we're, we're building these brand new intersections of industries that have never even hung out in any sort of realm before. And now we're putting them all in the same space. And so there's going to be so much like complexity and diversity with with like what you can do here. And I think that's contributing to the, to the gravitational pull that you're illustrating in your article. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like, it's, it's exactly what you talk about where, um, you know, all of these different people are coming together and forced to work together and therefore are learning about each other. Right. Like you, if you are a trader, you might just want to moon, right. And you're just looking to uh, trade shit coins, but you know, over the course of doing that research, you learn about about Austrian economics, how the government works, how law works. You know, you're reading tweet, uh, Twitter, tw <laughs> tweets uh, from lawyers on Twitter. Um, you're like getting into all of this stuff. You're learning about the energy grid because you're looking into mining. It it's really incredible how this space you know makes you think like a polymath. Um, and you know, again, like that's why we're all here. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And imagine if you're a trader and you need to and you need to understand Bitcoin's value proposition. So you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and, and you understand Austrian economics. And then all of a sudden your mind shifts about politics. And that's that's how like the desire to trade into more wealth created like some sort of narrative in your head that changes who you are. And so when you say that Bitcoin changes you, rather you you change it. I see that's just one of the one of the many vehicles to which 
that happens because you are forced to pay attention to the other disciplines you force you're kind of forced to become a polymath and if you can't if you if you're somebody that doesn't enjoy learning that would be the one type of population that i would say that crypto is not for you like if, if you're not a perpetual learner like you <laughs> might not do so well in this space yeah that's that's definitely true i i, XRP. I totally agree <laughs> <laughs> there's still yeah, crypto and... for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh what you said about the multidisciplinary approach is definitely right like um i've i've been now obsessed with bitcoin for a couple of years and i still have i don't know maybe 200 books to read and uh i, I it's hard, it's very hard to keep up like i'm i'm on twitter 24 7 and just bookmarking things left and right and it's almost impossible to to keep up and also keep up just with with new projects new ideas um new improvements um every, everything that's happening it's it's just insane but what what i um Another reason why I wanted to to write this gravity article is because I believe that we are still living in peacetime, and I think this this podcast that you guys are are making is proof to that because you're having a very civil discussion and are open to arguments from from both the Bitcoin and the Ethereum side, and I think um, the we just had no real wars yet and. Like even between projects, but I I think it it will get even uglier, uglier as time progresses because I definitely think that states and other very powerful entities will try to attack um, Bitcoin and maybe other projects as well. But Bitcoin definitely, since it's still the king, and I also <laughs> I believe that it will stay the king, of course. But um, the, the the thing is that um, I heard you guys talk about proof of work and proof of stake a lot and you always mention that those two are not in competition and I tend to disagree because all networks are in competition all the time and we saw that with internet protocols and we see that with other things I mean we see it with social networks and we see it with games for example I mean if you if you uh, have five games in the same genre they all compete with each other <clears throat> and also money is competing just all monies are competing with each other all the time. And even if you have a, a proof of stake system, if Bitcoin, if like hyper Bitcoinization happens or Bitcoin goes to the moon, then attacking a proof of stake system is trivial. You just buy something, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think that's worth thinking about in a way. I, I, um, I mean, I might be wrong about some of those things, but I, I think um, all of those networks are in competition. And uh, I think thinking about them in terms of capturing value and capturing also mindshare and uh, yeah, having the biggest idea space, so to speak, is useful to determine what is the strongest project, for example. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, anytime there's a network, especially a network that surrounds money, there's there's going to be competition at some point in time. Uh, so I guess to, to correct the idea that proof of work and proof of stake don't compete is that they probably don't compete in their most uh, infant stages. Whereas, you know, Bitcoin's 10 years old, but really it's like five years old because the first five years were all just experimentation. Uh, and then proof of stake is an, an important an important period, Christian, of experimentation. So like you have to go through those. But it really wasn't really onto the scene until like, you know, 2014, 2015. And then proof of stake hasn't even really been experimented with uh, yet. And so in these stages, I wouldn't say they're competing too much because they're still in their experimentation phases. Uh but the on on the episode with Hazu, I gave the <clears throat> the illustration that you know Bitcoin is in like in Europe and and uh, Ethereum is in Asia or proof of work is in Europe and and proof of stake is in Asia and these networks are growing and growing and growing and eventually we're just going to meet in the Middle East with this crossroads of of you know where, where all the value is <laughs> and uh, it's that's going to be where where the war starts. Um, and I and I can even see that happening inside of Ethereum as well, where we have Compound, which is a money market, but we also have DYDX, and the two most uh, significant markets are lending out Dai, and basically all mar all other markets are basically null. And Compound has been around for you know almost half a year now, and DYDX came around three months ago, and DYDX has already swallowed up like fifty percent of Compound's. Uh, compounds uh, lending rates and so even inside of ethereum we're seeing similar 
grabs for for territory both and so we're, we're seeing it across protocols and inter protocols and it's all just about consolidation right like it's all every every platform that you're building whether it's a, a blockchain or a blockchain application it's a grab it's a grab for virtual real estate slash virtual capital and you know there can only be so many of these uh and you know, I, when Christian and I initially started this podcast, it was Bitcoin versus everything, as in like I was the everything side of things. And then that quickly consolidated into Bitcoin versus Ethereum, because I very much believe that there's only going to be two blockchains <laughs> by the time we die. That's going to be Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. And they're still going to be at war with each other to that day. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny, because as I said, I, I just binged through your whole podcast, basically. And I um, in, the, in the last two or three days, I just lived through this process that you guys went through. And it was <laughs> very apparent to me that you talked about all kinds of things in the beginning. And uh, uh, I don't know what kind of episode it was, but it was after like maybe 10 or 15 episodes. It was like, yeah, everything else is a shit coin and there's only Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I really had to laugh <laughs> because it's, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, uh, I, I also like, um, I mean, the biology analogy is, is really great, but I also like the analogy of religion and it's, uh, the same with you know religion you have polytheism you have monotheism and you have atheism <laughs> and uh, here you have multi-coiners and bitcoiners and, and no coiners you know it's the same thing and uh, my question to you would be um, you know um, in a way why do, like why is it so hard for you to make the leap from just dropping another shitcoin <laughs> no offense by the way <laughs> I'm saying why why haven't I made the leap from Ethereum yeah. to Bitcoin? Because full disclosure, I I have made this leap. So I um I was basically um a, an ETH head for quite a while, and um I I also managed to see the light. And uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> this podcast is a uh, public is a public showing of David's converting. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying that for hey, we, we got to meet in the middle and i came from all the way from from one end and you haven't budged at all so i think it's actually your turn to to take a couple steps towards the middle my ba my bags may have budged a little bit <laughs> gg to to answer your answer your question and like totally right because i like i said i started that at that poly corner end of the spectrum uh and the the reason why i came closer to the middle wherever you define the middle uh, is because of the belief of monetary maximalism. Yeah. And so that's really, really important. And it's just not efficient to have these networks of blockchains, especially when Ethereum can operate as the network itself. And so we have Ethereum in the base layer, but then we also have plasma chains, which you can operate a blockchain on, and you can manipulate those plasma chains to operate like any other blockchain can. And so you can, and we have like EOS on top of Ethereum inside of Loom, right? And we have uh, the Lightning Network on top of Ethereum inside of inside of Kyber, right? And so one of the one of the criticisms I wanted to bring to your article, which you already addressed, saying that it's actually not specific to Bitcoin, but just to crypto economic systems at large that have these gravity uh, gravity things. And then the other thing about your article that you said is that Bitcoin changes you; you don't change it. And to me, when I hear that, I hear that Bitcoin is so rigid and unchanging that you have to conform to it. But to me, I hear that Bitcoin is limiting its potential reach in its people because of its lack of expressiveness. And so Ethereum took that small step away from rigidity into expressiveness in order to be able to create interesting things like EOS on top of Ethereum or like Lightning on top of Ethereum or like any other other projects that are built on top of it on top of Ethereum. And so I see Ethereum as being this like thing that you don't actually have to change to because that you can build a platform on it that agrees with your ideology about whatever about economics or, or politics or you can you can build it to conform to what you need it to be. Uh, and so whereas Bit whereas Bitcoin changes you, you can actually express your opinion and, and get that built on Ethereum because of the EVM, because of the customizable code. And so therefore, it actually has the potential to reach everyone because you can set the rules that it needs to be. And so I actually see that the, the monetary maximalism, because I totally believe in one blockchain ruling them all and some sort of 80-20 distribution, 
And it just makes sense that it's this going to be this blockchain that can express itself in any particular capacity. Okay, yeah, that was a great answer. And I think it's really funny because you sound like a Bitcoin maximalist, but uh, you are, of course, well, so the Ethereum maximalist. You're, you're totally right. <laughs> yeah, and, I, 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 the Bitcoin maximalist thought is totally correct. It's just applied to the wrong blockchain. <laughs> and I, I, I tell that all the time. What, what, what what do you see as a as a feature uh, or what do you see as a bug i see as a feature like the fact that no one so far as of yet had, was able to change bitcoin like what i call the essence of of bitcoin um that's that's the biggest feature in my opinion and um that's also one of the reasons why i moved away from ethereum and did so quite quickly because um after the fork from of ethereum classic and uh yeah what we now call ethereum and uh, the reversal of the DAO hack it was just apparent to me that um the claim of immutability and unstoppable code is just that a claim and not a reality and uh again i i'm convinced that we are still living in peacetime and i don't even want to think about what would happen if there is a real war going on and i mean that in also in a literal sense in a way and um i just yeah i, I realized that bitcoiners they have uh, in my opinion the right approach they they have something of a worst case mindset and i don't see that as much in in ethereum or even in in stuff like like proof of stake for example also doesn't have a worst case mindset in my opinion and um yeah that's what led me to bitcoin ultimately but I, i'd be interested to hearing your, your thoughts on that yeah so you started that off by saying that uh bitcoin's lack of uh changeability is a is a feature not a bug and i totally agree it's it's bitcoin's biggest feature but uh in the landscape of potential value peaks you know bitcoin is on a peak in its local landscape because of its absolute resistance to change and that's super valuable it's just something that isn't going to be able to scale globally because it's because there is a different peak elsewhere that you have to go and climb down into a valley in order to find the bigger taller peak i don't know what to call these spectrums sam harris uses this in the moral landscape and a couple other people use this analogy but it's like a top to topographical like landscape and when you're on one peak you don't know that there's another higher peak elsewhere and I think that's where Bitcoin's made it made its mistake is it's found a pretty high peak of value. And that's why Bitcoin's value proposition or, or market cap is so large. But there's a different higher peak that's currently being built on that just needs a lot of development time in order to really capture all that value. And that's that's what I see happening on Ethereum. I, I agree with the basic idea that you said. I just think that Bitcoin is capable of climbing all of those peaks. Um, in the same way, like you said, you, you know, it, it's it's a layered approach. So, uh, and and that's also um, it, it's fascinating to me because, like your your position is really fascinating to me because you arrived already at monetary maximalism, and and that's a big win because a lot of uh, a lot of people that are into other other coins they just say. Uh, yeah, you change this coin for that and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, I can't remember who said it, but basically shitcoinery is is barter and Bitcoiners uh, are like Bitcoin is money and, sh and shitcoins is, is barter. That's what it boils down to, because if you have a, a single token for every single thing that you want to do, then it defeats the whole purpose of money. And I think just the the fact that we that everyone who studies this deeply enough arrives at the same conclusion that you that one money makes sense then you just have to look deeply into the characteristics of money and realize that the hardest money makes the most sense and i just don't see that ethereum can be any harder money than bitcoin and that's why i think i i mean i i i respect your opinion for voicing it and you you voice it very eloquently and uh, uh again i just listened to your talk for i don't know maybe 70 hours or so on 2x <laughs> well, that's <laughs> so a lot of time <laughs> kind, kind of well i think i i just uh i'm i'm fascinated by it because uh if if someone else would have told me your journey and everything you guys talked about i would have i, I would have bet my money on it that you would become a Bitcoin maximalist, David, but you, you haven't ended up, you haven't seen the light yet. <laughs> you said that, that the, it makes sense to go to the hardest money. Um, so one of 
Ethereum's most prioritized goal in Ethereum 2.0 is absolute security and uh, an absolute necessity of absolute uh, security is network value and therefore monetary policy. And so, you know, one of the most frequent criticisms from Bitcoiners to Ethereum is that Ethereum has absolutely no monetary policy. But that's because in the last three years, we've been researching what the best monetary policy is. But instead of using the terms monetary policy, we've used security or economic security. And so in with Ethereum 2.0, there's this algorithmic issuance that issues enough Ether, the minimum amount of Ether to secure the network. And I can't really think of a better definition of hard money that is also proven to work than the minimum viable issuance to maximally secure the network. And the, the Bitcoin hard cap is, you know, having a hard cap is the the hardest money possible but there's actually no real proof that the hard cap is actually something that works and so i'm i choose to go with the researched hard money rather than the hypothetical hard money okay yeah i mean that's that's all all of that is future talk and we can't really know i mean dan held wrote a great piece uh on dispelling the future fee market fund and i think just bitcoin fees will be high enough on the base layer that this won't be a problem at all and i think bitcoin security is fine hey that was actually the title of that mm -hmm. now I remember. oh we're familiar we had him on the podcast uh, not too long ago <laughs> what concerns me about ethereum most is um i don't know too much about ethereum 2.0 but i think the plan is to take the value distribution that's currently in the Ethereum blockchain and put it on 2.0, so to speak. There won't be any redistribution of value, right? And what really concerns me is just the fact that uh, the Ethereum, how Ethereum was launched and um, Hasu, which you had also on your pod, brought in an absolutely amazing piece on this and it's called Ethereum Presale Dynamics Revisited. And he dissects everything that happened very clearly and for me it's just not clear at all that ethereum's distribution was fair uh, as opposed to bitcoin's distribution and i'm still concerned that um yeah this is a centralizing force in ethereum because nobody knows who who really owns the lion's share but we know that there is a lion's share that is owned and it was like a 70 percent pre-mine if i remember correctly and um a lot of you know kind of weird things were going on if you look back at the chain chain and chain analysis of it and that kind of concerns me for a worldwide value network yeah so other people who understand the economics of ethereum validating could answer this question more appropriately <clears throat> but like the, the the doomsday scenario that's often given is like joe lubin stakes all of his ether and then he just controls the ethereum blockchain from then into the future the problem with that <clears throat> is that you can only stake about like 10 validators worth on one computer at a time otherwise you can't really compete with computation and so like 10 validators is 320 ether right and so if you have i don't know how much joe lubin has but like say half a million he would need a whole you know data center worth of computers in order to stake all that ether which is really really expensive or he can go to aws and use aws except the problem with aws is that built into ethereum's security is something called um quadratic slashing i think is the name but basically what it what it means is if the, the val if the more validators go down at the same time they all get slashed more and so if more validators are all using AWS and AWS goes down because such a high percentage of validators went down at the same time, they all get slashed commensurately to the percentage of the network that went down. And so it's an incentive to not use AWS and to use individual laptops or computers to host nodes in order to distribute um, and distribute the network. And so that makes it really, really hard for Joe Lubin, who has all this ether to manage enough nodes unless he actually goes and starts to spin up individual computers that are connected to individual internets and so like putting 30 computers under one internet is actually not the best way to do it because you still have that if your internet goes down so you have to distribute your own nodes to across uh, your own internets and so that to me um even for somebody the whales that bought that that have too much ether proportionally it makes it really difficult for them to control mo more of the network 
um, I have. I don't think I have anything to add to, to that. I think you made a point for Bitcoin there, <laughs> and I think you also highlighted what the problem is with proof of stake in a way that it is a centralizing force as opposed to mining, which isn't really that much of a problem because miners are basically the slaves of the Bitcoin network in a way. If you have a network of cheap, fully validating nodes, which is really hard to do currently in Ethereum, right? Um, then uh, there is not a problem in that way that miners can't really influence the network or the, the consensus rules on the network. And I think that's a very um, important distinction to make that, um, as we have seen with the user-activated software, for example, that the users drive the network, the fully validating nodes drive the network in Bitcoin. And so I think, yeah, I think you made my point for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't support the idea that Bic that mining is any. Um, I would say that mining is way more centralizing than than proof of stake. And this, we can we know this is true when China has somewhere between like forty and fifty percent of Bitcoin miners. And the whole point of proof of stake is to reduce the uh, economies of scale that you get through a mining operation and, and allow people to stake inside their own homes. Um, yeah, well, but I, I, I still think that uh, there is a huge centralization force in proof of stake. And I mean, the, the, your pie just tends to get bigger and the bigger your pie is, the quicker it gets. Mining is hyper competitive in Bitcoin. And again, miners are slaves to the Bitcoin network. So it's not that you have direct influence just because you're mining. You're making a profit. That's what you're doing. You're not influencing the network and the rules of the network. Yeah, this is something we'll, we'll have to see play out for sure. Fight night round three right here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really recommend everyone who uh, wants to look into the difference of proof of work and proof of stake more deeply. Hugo, I can't pronounce his last name, Hugo uh, Nguyen or something like that. Nguyen. He, ah, there you go. Thanks. <laughs> That's the problem. I don't talk to people. I just I just read stuff, you know, so I can't pronounce names for, for you know, if my life would depend on it. And he wrote excellent uh, pieces on that. Um, and um, for example, proof of work is timeless and proof of stake is not. I don't remember all the titles, but uh, it, it, he makes excellent points on the comparison of proof of work and proof of stake. My, my, my biggest problem with proof of stake, it might work, but I don't think it's going to matter because there's nothing wrong with proof of work. And actually proof of work is extremely beneficial. So taking away the energy consumption actually makes a worse consensus mechanism, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not too concerned with the centralizing force that uh, people are so worried about. Yeah, um, uh, I have to, like full disclosure, I don't believe in proof of stake, period. <laughs> like um, I wrote an article on um, changing my point of view on proof of work. I was very skeptical about proof of work as well. And uh, it took me a very, very long time to wrap my head around it. And I, I still, I'm still not sure if I understand it completely. Like I had already like, three or four epiphanies in regards to proof of work. And I'm not sure if uh, like there might be another one tomorrow. And uh, I just think that in, in, a, in a worst case scenario, proof of stake won't work and proof, uh, proof of work might, you know, like I think it's all about building something that can survive the biggest attack you can think of. And the biggest attacks we can think of are state level attacks, like coordinated state, le state level attacks. And if you can't survive that, then what are you even doing? You don't, need a, you don't need a fucking blockchain. You don't need a cryptocurrency at all. You can just make another PayPal or make whatever you want. You can make sock bucks, you know? It, it, it just doesn't matter. You need something that's super, super resilient. It just can't be killed. And you need some, for that, you need something that is extremely decentralized, like as decentralized as you can make it. And um, I just don't see proof of stake, like the idea of proof of stake work in a scenario where it, just, it gets really attacked. And by that, I mean China and Russia and the US conspiring to attack Ethereum, for example, or a proof of stake system. And um, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. The, 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 like full disclosure, those are my thoughts. I think it's interesting to talk about and think about it. I just don't think it has too much merit in the real world because I think shit will hit the, the fan rather sooner than later, and um, we will have to be prepared for the biggest attacks we can think of. Yeah, totally. And this is actually gets into it, the conversation. Really changes as to who is actually in it. 
Uh, and so I, I, this is going to mention something technical that's, that gets way over my head, but the Ethereum 2.0 spec is specifically built to create a proof of stake network that can survive World War III. Like that is the statement, like how do we create a network that survives World War III where over 90% of the nodes go offline for whatever reason. And so like Ethereum is specifically, or Ethereum 2.0 is specifically being built with planning for World War III in mind. So I wouldn't go, I mean, these developers know way more than me, and I don't know how they're building it uh, to be World War III resistant, but I do know that that is one of their goals. And so we would need to, we would need to talk to them about why, why they do or do not think that that would work. Yeah, I mean, um, you still have the problem of um, just distributing the initial funds, and I think proof of work from, from, um, from the beginning does that beautifully and uh, so I think we we all agree that a pure proof of stake system cannot work for that reason because you could somehow have to distribute the, the funds in the beginning and uh, I'm not convinced if switching to proof of stake will ever work so that's that's my 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 point on that and uh, the reason for that is uh, based in physics basically like uh, I, I think um, that once you once, once you go away from the connection to the real world, and for me, proof of work is simply the connection to the real world. Uh, it's the first, like, I, I think that's the, the most ingenious thing about Bitcoin. I mean, it's hard to pick one because the difficulty adjustment is probably the most ingenious thing. But still, using proof of work as an anchor to the real physical world is what changed everything because that's what actually enabled you to, to create digital scarcity. And in a way, I, you know, we'll see. I, I, as I said in the beginning, I'm willing to be proven wrong. I'm willing to um, see how it plays out and maybe it will work even in the worst case. I'm just not convinced of it yet. Yeah. So two, two things about that. And I'll let Christian take over. Um, I do think there's a ton of value of the fact that Ethereum was proof of work or, or will have been proof of work for like four years before it transitions to proof of stake. I would imagine starting a proof of stake network, starting with proof of stake is way harder simply because of the distribution. Um, but we do have like, but when Ethereum goes to Ethereum 2.0, we will have like four years of of uh, entropy of, of diffusion of ether to to make sure that this network can can stand up in a decentralized fashion the other thing i wanted to address is having your economic security tied to real world um, assets or or energy or resources um, and so the the analogy i always give is that you know bitcoin is mining because you know like literally gold mining because of the analogy that that we all know like Bitcoin is uses energy to extract resources by producing this labor intensive cost uh, process. But the proof of stake market or Ethereum 2.0 is the bond market where you take your fiat not backed by anything dollars and you put $100 in and buy a one year T-bill and in, in one year you get $103 back out. And so that's that. And the bond market is the biggest market on planet Earth. I don't know how big it is, but it's trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, and that's not anything that's backed by real world value. And the, it's the only thing that you are putting up is your capital, which is exactly what proof of stake is. So you stake your capital on an agreement to not receive it for a while. And when you receive it, it it's a little bit bigger. And so this, this parallel is something that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, fair point. I, I don't think I have anything to add for that. I still think that my point stands that uh, the unfair distribution of Ethereum in the beginning still stands. And if Ethereum, uh, like... Again, you're a monetary maximalist, and if you think that Ethereum will take over and will be the currency of the world, we still have a very, very unfair distribution uh, from the get-go. So I don't think that's good. And uh, I think Bitcoin's distribution was fair again. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I strongly believe it's the superior money, like by far, by like not even close. <laughs> but uh, again, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong about that, and the market will decide. Market and time will decide. So something that you talk about a little bit here, Gigi, is a state-level attack. Brandon Quidham in the previous interview we did with him uh, calls this the great filter of cryptocurrencies. Would love to kind of jump into, you know, based on what you see today, like what do you think is the most likely scenario for some sort of state-level attack? 
Yeah. Um, so again, I, I I love Brandon to death. I think he's such a smart guy. He's uh, yeah, he's written great articles. I love the interview you guys did with him. So huge shout out. I, I have an immense amount of respect for him. And um, I think the great filter analogy is is a genius one. I, I heard it the first time on on your podcast actually. And um, I just want to stress how early we are. <laughs> so it's really hard to make any predictions. I think we're in like early 90s internet time, but everything moves faster. And I think just the whole market cap and, and everything is still very small. I mean, the last, the, the last hype cycle, everyone kind of heard about Bitcoin and, and knows about Bitcoin, but nobody knows really what it is. Like uh, if, you, if you burst out, like if you talk to people outside of, of the Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto bubble, then nobody has any clue at all. We're still so early. It's still so small. So I think um, uh, a really big attack will still be far in the future, I think. And maybe there, maybe there won't be one. That's what I hope. I mean, it's, it's interesting to, to speculate on all that. But I, I really hope that... Um, Bitcoin will be so far ahead and it will be um, so resilient that it just won't, it, it won't be feasible to attack it in, in a way. And I also hope that the just secondary systems that are currently being built, I see it as just like a secondary, second layer economy, just, um, you know, like in, in countries that are in really big trouble, just secondary black market economies spawn up all the time and they sometimes overtake them, the real economies and everything still kind of works. I mean, people don't starve to death and not the absolute mayhem breaks out. And uh, I hope that this will kind of happen, but with, um, with sound money, the reintroduction of sound money. And I hope that everything will just grow and we will have another couple of hype cycles and suddenly, yeah, everything kind of uses Satoshi's as the underlying unit if you pay something on PayPal or whatever. and Nobody really realizes it um, or talks about it. So um, I, I just think that we can't rule out the possibility of a state-level attack. And I think that the most likely candidate would be the US because just the US dollar is the strongest currency and it's like the reserve currency of the world in a way. And I don't think that um, the US will give up the power easily that they have and um, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks on Twitter the clip uh, of I can't remember his name but the congressman who just shilled Bitcoin to the max <laughs> um, they, they at least some people know what's going on and know what what's at stake so uh, I think uh, as soon as the officials kind of wake up to this um, we can't rule out the possibility that Bitcoin will be attacked big time so I've definitely noticed that there is a much larger percentage of government officials, senators, uh, presidents in general that have taken notice to cryptocurrency versus a percentage of normal people that have taken notice to it. So I actually am quite paranoid um, and that I'm, I've been spreading like this idea that this is why altcoins are good because they create confusion amongst our biggest enemies. Um, Versus, you know, creating confusion amongst a very small percentage of humans that have interacted with them. Um, so personally, you know, that's kind of my my justification why I think altcoins are actually beneficial to Bitcoin. But I, I'm actually quite scared that um, some sort of state level attack is, you know, within the next five year horizon. Yeah, I think that's the best argument I've ever heard uh, regarding altcoins. So <laughs> that they are the the pawns on the field in a way, and I agree. I, I mean, all of that is super confusing, uh, and um, it's uh, I'm I'm kind of amazed how how good of a grasp some of the politicians have on the space. So they're definitely not not sleeping in a way, and. Um, I, I just can't put my finger on any timeline. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised, and I've said it before, I wouldn't be surprised if everything happens way, way faster than we might think. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if something that will make everyone's head spin. I'm not calling it hyper-Bitcoinization, but uh, it, it might be... Uh, 
close to it you know like the last hype cycle was already i mean bitcoin went to 20k and everyone's like oh maybe that's it maybe it will go to 100k and beyond and uh, it just will be crazy from there on and uh, and i might think because people are talking about time horizons in like you know 30 years 50 years i don't think it will take that long i think it, it has the potential to go way way quicker because it's just an expansion technology and if you look back for 10 years you know like 10 or 11 years ago or something like that the first iphone was introduced and where are we now so talking about a 30 year time horizon is just nonsensical in a way and i think that i wouldn't be surprised if it would be with the next hardening for example or with the one after that this would be you know like five years from now and like you know with the next halving is is next year it's it's almost imminent and and then it's only four years to the other one so that's five years and i i'm sure it will be crazy and if you look at the stock to flow analysis that some people did uh, most notably plan b uh, on twitter like 100 trillion usd is is his uh, name and if you just model it that way then with the with not with the, the coming halving but with the one after that we're already in like way beyond the moon you know what i mean and things will be so cre crazy i i'm convinced that things like they won't make sense in five years from now i i'm convinced of that and i don't the only exception of that is if bitcoin dies if there is like a, a horrible uh, like the CVA bug uh, that's, that gets exploited and, and suddenly we have weird things that, um, yeah, Bitcoin is inflationary after all, for example, or uh, something kills the network. Um, but even that, I think Bitcoin could survive and then it would just take longer. And um, yeah, that's my, my take on that. But I can't tell you when it happens. So. I don't know. <laughs> Gigi, I want to thank you for coming on POV because you are a, a great sparring partner. You are you are welcome back anytime to, to continue this debate as we get more of these details about the future of crypto hashed out. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Um, I, I hope I, I didn't bash Ethereum too hard. I apologize if that's the case. Actually, I don't because it's just not shit. This is me, this is the place to do it. <laughs> we don't we don't limit anyone here. No, you 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 guys are doing great work. So so. Um, I keep the conversation going. I think it's great what you're doing. And uh, I, I love listening to all the pods. So, so yeah, keep doing what you're doing. It's great stuff, guys. Thanks, Gigi. Where can people find more about you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter basically all the time. So just reach out there. It's probably the best place. And um, if you want to read my stuff, I try to move What's away from Medium. My handle is there, Gigi, at D-E-R-G-I-G-I. -I. And that's my handle everywhere. And I also have a page set up just to move away from medium and that's their gg.com you also recently uh put out uh your 21 lessons at uh, is that a separate website yeah that's uh, uh, that's a separate url just for um uh, an easier way to talk about it 21lessons.com <laughs> and you'll land on my page all right awesome well dare gg they are gg at dare gg thanks again for coming on the show um like i said you got to come back on uh, this time, I won't even show up. It'll just be you and David. You guys can do a fight night episode. I would definitely listen to <laughs> yeah, that. Sorry about, sorry about that, Chris. <laughs> no, no, I'm not needed. And honestly, I feel bad because I've just been I've just been laying on, you know, some some really strong Bitcoin guests on David, and uh, it just turns into David versus them, which I'm perfectly fine with, uh, you know, other folks uh, making my argument for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that was great again. Thanks for having me. And um yeah, all, all, all the best in the future to both chains. <laughs> all right, guys, you can find the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. Please give us those five-star reviews. We're at like a 60 five-star review streak, so please get, keep that going. It's, uh, it's pretty sweet. Uh, pretty proud of that one. Uh, you can follow me at Trustless State, both on Medium and on Twitter. Christian? Yeah, you can find me at CK underscore snarks. Want to call out at Bitcoin 2019 conference, Bitcoin2019conference.com. Uh, David will be there. I don't know if uh, Gigi is going to be there, but we are also doing a big steak dinner the night before the conference. You can find details on that on Twitter. Uh, look at, you know, just go on my page at CK underscore snarks. You'll find details for that. Uh, but it's about to be a really good time at Bitcoin 2019 conference. And it starts right before at the beef cookout on my roof. Is it grass fed? <laughs> grass fed steak? The finest. Oh, my man, you know how to please me. And you're a carnivore already. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I, I subscribe to the carnivore diet for sure. That, that's real. <laughs> and David still not is the maximalist in the making. <laughs> you're a mystery to me. You're a mystery to me, man. <laughs> 
Oh, sometimes I surprise myself too. All right, guys, I'll, I'll see you guys eating steak on Christian's rooftop and at Bitcoin 2019, where I'll be wrapping my uh, Make a Dow shirt. <laughs> All right, guys. When Bye. the blue glow dries in Bye, the DJ. back of your mind, the glue, hold your breath and fade away. Tell me what do you see?